Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Simply Cyber Live Thursday, where we invite industry guests onto the channel for long-form, hour-long conversations into their area of expertise, and we make them widely accessible to you. So get ready with your questions. Get ready to absorb some knowledge. We've got a gem today. We are bringing on Mike DiNapoli, who is a director, as you can see, over at Simulate. You guys may be familiar with Simulate. We've done multiple things on the channel with them in the past. He's going to come on and talk about attack path management, not a talk like a taco path management, I guess. I don't know. Maybe that's a new thing that we can push for. Attack path management, how it matters to you, how it relates to continuous threat exposure management or CTEM. You may have seen a recent video on the channel about vulnerability management is dead and how it's evolved into this new kind of framework. Mike is an expert on this, which is why we're having him on so he can discuss about this topic and enlighten all of us. I had a couple questions for myself to uh, to help myself as a professional as well. So without further ado, I'm going to go get Mike. Please be ready to engage. The chat will be on the screen. We're going to have a great time. Settle in. Let's do this. All right, Mike, how are we doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. Glad to be here. I love it. So, Mike, I kind of teased it in the intro, but I guess just to kind of level set, do you want to share with folks, you know, what I guess kind of like define attack path management so we have a, a ground to work from and then work our way up? Yeah, I mean, well, first off, I'm, I'm going to get my uh, development team on the attack tacos. I think that's a, a great uh, great idea. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like really pairs in like on Tuesdays, you, we're going to do a, a, a taco path management uh, conversations, you know, little brown bags with tacos. I love it. Yep, there we go. So uh, attack path management at its heart is this idea of we we have ways that we can test different security controls and different methodologies, but it's always remained very much in the technical world. So that's the first issue that has to be overcome. And the second issue is that putting the pieces together to say that a vulnerability in this area could be linked to a vulnerability in this area, to this area, to this area, to really see what are the most likely methods that a threat actor would try to uh, gain entrance. That's something that can be quite difficult to do. It requires a lot of processing power, requires a lot of time, and also requires really, really good data sets on the individual controls and methods and processes in question. So attack path mapping is this idea of taking all that disparate data and beginning to bring it together to see where the gaps line up to provide a path, as its name would suggest, for a threat actor to successfully reach that goal, that action on objectives. So do you see this as a kind of evolution as vulnerability management, as I've as I've started, you know, going out and, and spewing about that that's kind of what it is? Uh, what are your thoughts about that as, as, as how it relates to traditional vulnerability management? Well, vulnerability management is a component of attack path mapping. So they're, they're, they dovetail very well. It's not necessarily the next gen of vuln management. It's the idea that vuln management, a traditionally blue team operation, and uh, red team assessment and testing, which is on the other side of the house, need to start coming together in a way that is intelligible, not only for the technical professionals from both teams, but also for the business stakeholders who are going to have to authorize a lot of this. So, I mean, is attack path management then, like, I guess, how does it correlate to purple teaming? Because, because what, you know, I just heard you say, you know, the pen tester side and, and the, you know, the defender side need to get together. And like, to me, that's like purple, purple, you know? 
It absolutely is. This is a prime example of what purple teaming can be. This idea that both skill sets, the offensive testing skill set, the defensive skill set can come together to see what the actual level of risk of a particular infrastructure or a particular business unit is, is really sort of the main goal for a lot of purple team operations. So it's not necessarily a new idea, but it is something that's happening much more often. More organizations are adopting purple teaming methodologies. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they need the, the knowledge base and the tool set, not only for them internally, but also for the rest of the business. Yeah, so Chuck Sapp asks a, a great question, uh, and I say great question because I have it queued up as a as a card already. But uh, Chuck wants to know how do you prioritize attack paths? Yeah, it's uh, it, it's not easy, but it can absolutely be done with the technology sets that we have today. Attack paths are prioritized based on three common components. First one, obviously, is the level of risk associated with a known threat. If there is no known threat, that's taken into consideration as well. The second is, are there compensating controls that can deal with this particular issue, lessening the overall risk of the path itself? And the third, what kind of impact is this going to have on the business? Because a great example of this is there are a lot of Microsoft Exchange servers out there that are still not patched for proxy not shell. We have a known attack path. There are multiple threat actor activities that revolve around that vulnerability. But unfortunately for many of these shops, patching the exchange server isn't a thing that can be done. They're going to have to upgrade. They're going to have to go to a later version of exchange or they're going to have to move to Office 365. So that, and I think this is another one of your cards, this idea of the temporal factor. Yeah. Can Is this something that we could even do immediately? Or is this something that's going to require planning and downtime it doesn't mean you ignore it, but it means that you prioritize defense and compensation rather than corrective action, because the corrective action is going to take time. Yeah, and it, it really does. And, and, you know, just, you know, we're, we're using a lot of terminology, like industry terminology, and I, I hear you 100%, but just to break it down in case there's some people who are new to the, you know, industry or new to the space or whatever. Um, you know, as far as like you identify a problem, well, you can you can kind of nerf down how bad a problem it is without eliminating the problem, right? right. Like Mike's example of uh, like upgrading an exchange server, yeah, that's going to completely fix the problem. But if you can put in a bunch of detection controls and you know shoehorn it so if a compromise does happen, the blast radius effectively uh, isn't so bad. You're kind of reducing that impact factor on the risk calculation. So. Um, no, definitely great point. Um, you did mention, I do have a card, but it's really important. Um, let's talk about the temporal aspect of attack path management and vulnerability management in general. How do, how do you see time really being a, a factor? Well, time could be a limiting factor. It could also be an accelerating factor. Normally, though, it's a limiting factor. And the reasons are simple. We're faced with hundreds of, in, in large organizations, thousands of things that need to be patched. Not every single one is going to take the same priority. And each mm -hmm. patch is going to take a certain amount of time. It could be time to apply it. It could be downtime to business units that rely on that system or that service. So everything that we do has a temporal connection, a temporal variable. Now, attack path management starts to allow business stakeholders and technical stakeholders to really see we have to dedicate the time to this corrective action 
or control action, which is what we were talking about, this idea of um, uh, compensating for something. In the light of the fact that every minute I spend on this, I take away from that. So prioritization of which ones to correct first and which ones to control first is really how you define where you're going to allocate your time uh, during the day. Well, what about, how about, I mean, I agree 100% and it, you know, it, it even introduces another dimension of why time is so complicated. So with attack path management, you know, if you measure what's your attack, like say you're going to manage the attack path, right? And you identify like, you know, this host to this host to this crown jewel or this host to this file share to whatever, or this cloud system into your internal network. When you look at that on Tuesday and everything's cool, and then you, you, you know, something bad happens between now and next Tuesday, like that, that, that gap of time of exposure, um, are you guys, you know, I guess it's simulated in, in, in areas where you're doing that. I mean, how are you, how, like, how are you measuring that? That That's like, you know what I mean? Like there, there's an exposure window that is a time-based thing that like you reported in your weekly meeting on Tuesday that, you know, thumbs up everybody, we're good to go. And your boss gives you a high five and it was taco Tuesday. Obviously that's why we went on Tuesday, but then on Wednesday, like something drops and you've got this exposure window for a week. So how, how are we to, I guess, reconcile that or at least account for it? Well, the main thing is, first off, you have to have visibility into what these things are. And you gave a prime example of one that we need to be careful of. Ingress, getting to the crown jewel, is a, a huge component of uh, figuring out what the attack path is. But remember that the majority of threat activity these days also goes in the other direction. They're trying to remove things from the organization. Mm -hmm. So first off, knowing the full extent of, of the danger posed by that vulnerability, by that exposure is is key it's critical without knowing that you really can't begin to address it and addressing it may be in stages so on tuesday we may say that we have it contained for now but we are going to keep an eye on what's going on in the greater world because things can change on a dime we saw that twice this year where the patch introduced another vulnerability so you had to apply yeah. another patch to fix that vulnerability and things like that will happen software is getting bigger and bigger and more complex and these things will happen so attack path management is not a point in time operation it's something that occurs and evolves you correct and then you keep an eye on things preferably through some kind of automated system so you're not mm -hmm. manually doing this every single day and you allow it to evolve as the threat itself evolves hopefully they don't hopefully they end but if it is going to evolve you're keeping an eye on these types of things yeah. And, you know, so I want to I want to say what's up to people in chat. I see a lot of regulars in here. Chuck, Ben, uh, Carrie, Alicia. Good to see you guys, Kimberly. It's always nice to see you. Ben, Ben asked a question that I'm going to like rephrase a little bit, but he wants to know good skills, good software for people entering blue team. So if you are new to the industry or new to, um, you know, blue or red, as you said, they, they both can kind of play a part in attack path management. How might you suggest someone like what what's the day one what's the lab one what's the what's the approach to kind of beginning to appreciate attack path management and then operationalize it as a practitioner so when we're talking blue team we're talking defensive operations and so of course there are the usual suspects you want to look at 
you know, anti-malware type tools. You want to become familiar with how uh, security incident and event management seem solutions actually work. You don't necessarily have to become an expert in them. In a lot of cases, your organization may outsource that, but you should know the basics of what they do and how they work, how vulnerability managers work. Again, you don't have to focus on any specific one. Uh, you could start with one, maybe one of the open source ones like OpenVos and get a feeling for an idea of how these systems operate, uh, how they use software called sensors to grab things and detect things, how a seam uh, ingests or grabs the information that it's going to do. And those core concepts are going to be the same no matter what products an individual organization decides to use, because the concepts are the same, but the features change product mm -hmm. by product. Yeah, it, it's true. Exactly. 100% agree with you on the con understanding concepts um, because they do change uh, so often. Now, Mike, let me ask, whoops, hold on, Chuck. I'll get you in a second. I let saw me, that uh, one. I do want to get to that one. Yeah, yeah I, I want to ask you. Okay, so let's do that one then. Okay, Chuck, Mike has called called in your question. How do we balance the need for, for effective attack path management with the need to maintain business productivity and functionality? And that's where C10 really comes into the play because the big part of C10 that changed the game was this idea that it cannot be just the technology. The business stakeholders for that business unit, that services group, that sales group, whatever it is, have to be part of this process. And that means that you need to be able to translate the risk in technical terms into the risk against the business. Now, in a lot of cases, the way that we do that um, on, on my side of the house is we relate it to exactly what that business is familiar with thinking about. Uh, if let's say the finance team needs to take a six hour outage of their main service because you need to correct for something to close an attack path. Well, you know, would they allow a cash drawer to sit unattended for any length of time? No, but at certain points of the day, if we're talking about a retail business, that cash drawer has to move from the front of the house to the back of the house. And until the new drawer is slid in, they can't run any transactions through that register. This is a known thing. This is something that happens all the time and it's accepted. And if you can find those correlation points, you could start bringing those business stakeholders into the process. And then they start saying business productivity is going to be significantly hampered if we get hit. And there is a high likelihood that because of the nature of this attack, we will get hit. Yeah, I'm. A, I gotta tell you what, Mike, I'm a big analogy guy. And I loved that analogy. I will steal that analogy. I, I will give you uh, props at, or si I'll cite you as I steal it, but it's so effective. Like um, whether we're talking attack path management or trying to get budget for a new security technology or, or anything, you have such a, it's like, it's almost like it, to, 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 to grab it is almost, it vaporizes before you get it. Like you have such limited time of, focus from the business to listen to you that you need to be quick, effective, communicative, and analogies are always a great way because you kind of remove the, or you abstract the technical piece into a concept they get. And money is definitely something the business gets. And when you're talking about taking the till out uh, for downtime, I really do think uh, they get it. So let me, yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you have any other gems like that, but uh, def definitely drop them on on me if you do. Um, I there's one that we, so we here at Simulate, because we work, we talk about continuous testing. 
of security controls. Mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of cases, people don't, on the business side don't understand why is that necessary. We do a pen test once a year. We're good. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Pen testing is important. It's critical. You should be doing it at least once a year. However, go to your CF, uh, go to your sales, uh, your sales manager, your VP of sales, and tell that person that they can only check their sales forecast once a year. <laughs> it's the exact same thing. These are things that we have done in every other area of business. Attack path mapping is the same thing as sales strategies. It's the same thing as accounts receivable and accounts payable flow processes. These are not new things. They're new things to the technology world, but they are not new things to the world of business. And when we could start making those correlations through analogies or through explanations, that's when these business stakeholders come on board and start working with us instead of against us on the tech side. Yeah. So the name of this talk is Cyber Attack Path Management Like a Boss. And I hope you're beginning to appreciate why it's like a boss, because it's not just a, a new skill to add into your toolbox. This, this, like what Mike's talking about is absolutely like kind of the whole the whole package of dealing with that. So, so Mike, let me ask you, and we didn't talk about this before, but like when we look at securing things, okay, like there's people, process, and technology, right? And I know Simulate's platform is a piece of technology, but, uh, and we can talk about that, of course, but attack path management, how do you see it? Um, it, it, in relation to people and process and technology, is it is it just a technology? Is it just uh, a skill? Like like how do you see it in that dimension or those dimensions? Well, it, it's actually all three. Mm -hmm. So there are subcomponents of attack path management. The first one is attack path discovery, which is typically very technical. It's using tools. It's using software. There's attack path validation, which is a purple team exercise. Uh, there are people and tools involved in that one. And then the management component of it is where we start saying this will take priority over that, not only because of the technical risk involved, but because of the business risk involved. Mm -hmm. And now we're talking, again, all three people, process and technology have to be involved in this. I love it. So as a practitioner, you know, I have I've done I've done some uh, CTEM and I've actually used Simulate for those who no, I, you know, I've said it on the channel before I've used the product. I, I, that's why I know about it. Um, with traditional vulnerability scanners, you, you know, you run the scan and it comes back with like, you know, like a million findings, right. And things that you're never going to fix things that are maybe false positives, all of this. So, you know, as a practitioner, you kind of have to comb through it. You kind of have to curate what you think is important and stuff like that. And then you have to go to the business or, or IT and say, hey, like, you know, I don't own this application. I don't own this device. And this is why InfoSec people need to bring a dozen donuts to the IT meetings every week to get, you know, capital. But um, so it's very that's a, that's always been a challenge that I've identified is getting them to agree that it is actually a risk, a real risk, because sometimes you'll say like, oh, we've got this problem. And they're like, no one's going to do that or like that's not a realistic scenario and stuff like that. With attack path management, again, I know to me, it's a little bit more of like vulnerability management, like on steroids, like it's a yeah. more robust process. How, how does somebody executing attack path management successfully navigate those challenging conversations with IT or with the business where they don't see the, the reality of the risk that you're presenting? Yeah. Well, I mean, and again, that's where CTEM really does shine. Because if you're doing CTEM the way that it was originally envisioned, and, and it was originally envisioned quite well, 
the first thing you're doing is scoping and scoping is not just defining the systems that will be in scope, but also the people, the business stakeholders, the IT stakeholders, the security stakeholders that are going to be in scope as well. And getting them all on board at the start to all agree, this is what we're going to be focusing on. When you identify an attack path, you discover an attack path, the IT people that are going to be part of building the controls to block it, the business people that are going to have to accept the downtime, hopefully not, but potentially yes, they're going to be in the room already, virtually in the room already. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So this is like a fun fact, right? And, and Mike, you're nailing it hundred percent. Here's a fun fact. It's easy to get like it's it's easy to get but it's easier to get budget than it is to convince the business to do something yep. but like so it's easy to get budget you buy a piece of technology like a vulnerability scanner or a, um you know one of these tools and you scan it and then you go to the business with your findings like what mike's suggesting which is brilliant is doing prep work planning getting buy-in from the the business side that you're about to do these things so when you do present them they're not kind of caught off guard i guess that that's kind of the essence of what you're saying it, it is. And it's easier to do that now than it's been in the past, because now we have major news stories. Yeah. The Guardian gets hit through a phishing attack. The U.S. House of Representatives had uh, sensitive data, access, personal data access. The organization that manages their health plans got hit. These are things that are making every newscast, not just the technology news. And so it becomes a little bit easier now to bring everyone to the table because a year ago, Oh yeah, that's some technical thing, and and we're never we're never going to understand it. Whereas today, the repercussions of not preparing for this stuff are very real to see, and they're they're, you know, are the the U.S. government can't even protect some of its data. Yeah, the thing is, they probably could have, and many many other areas of the U.S. government, both in the military sector and the the non-military sector, do defend their organizations, but. We're going to talk later about third-party risk. This is yeah. a prime example of that. And being able to say that thing you saw on the news or read online, Mr. or Ms. CEO, CFO, CTO, that's what we're going to be discussing. That's why we need to do this. It makes the, the other side of the house, makes our job a bit easier. Yeah, I 100% agree with you that the major news stories are undoubtedly valuable. Plus, I don't know if you saw, Mike, the... Um, the White House just released the cybersecurity strategy a couple days ago. And in concert with that, we're seeing uh, just today, the the federal government is, is dictating regulation onto the FAA or to the aviation industry around cybersecurity, uh, around the water sector. So, you know, even, even technology products, frankly, or software, it doesn't have to be security technology, but like any software, they're starting to push the accountability upstream to the developers and in, in, in the tech companies uh, to, to, you know, implement security or, or, you know, make it so you configure it by default or th these type of things. So certainly, yeah, I agree a hundred percent. It's definitely good. Um, well, actually, I wouldn't so say it's good, but it makes things easier. We never, I mean, we always hope that we never see those news stories, but it does make things easier. Yes. Yeah. Well, I meant it's good that there's a push to, to encourage yeah. businesses to do it. Sir, no, yeah. Not, not the data exfils and the privacy and the Medusa up in uh, Minneapolis. No, none of that. Um, so let me, let me ask you, actually, this is a good question. This is one of the questions that I didn't, I didn't know. And I was like, Mike, I need to know the answer to this. Please tell me. So we, we use 
CTIM, Continuous Threat Exposure Management. We, we say this all the time. We say attack path management. These two terms are different, and I've been using them kind of interchangeably, which is incorrect. So, Mike, can you enlighten me, please, um, on what – I know everybody in chat knows what it is, but I don't know. Can you, can you share with me what the difference is between these two? Yeah, CTIM is a process for uh, both enhancing the security of an organization and becoming prepared to deal with an exposure that occurs. So it's really a, a multi-phase operation that's got a much, much broader scope. Attack path management is one component that can contribute to a CTEM program. And it is this idea of where are, you, where are we weakest to these threats? Where are the likely areas that a threat will be encountered? And how successful potentially is that threat going to be? That is a piece of CTEM. CTEM is a much bigger process, not an unobtainable process by any means. Even very small organizations uh, can implement effective CTEM strategies. Attack path mapping is a tool. CTEM is the larger process of which APM is one tool in the toolbox. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, all right. So CTEM is kind of the capability. Attack path management is a, a tool or a technique to achieve the capability. To achieve part of it, uh, okay. APM alone will not help you. APM alone won't necessarily be the be all and end all of what you need to do, um, but it is one set of techniques that are very valuable when you're looking at a CTEM process. Yeah. What are some um, What are some like mistakes or common misunderstandings or you know you, you're like oh, all right I'm going to do attack path management this totally makes sense and then like you immediately fall on your face like what are what are some common you know, either misconceptions or mistakes people make when trying to move into attack path management? Yeah, I mean, so first and foremost, uh, the to be realistic about it, uh, we always, I always love using the, actually, Carolyn Crandall, our CMO, came up with this analogy, but I love using it. Well, you go to buy a car, there are a lot of choices. And who you are, what you need the car for, how long you'll need the car, all need to be brought together into deciding which one you're going to choose. So I could use a Ferrari to drive back and forth to the office every day. <laughs> it's not the best use of time or money. It's going to be a lot of maintenance, a lot of upkeep, and a car with much less overhead, much less maintenance, much lower cost can get the job done very effectively. Not just saying just get it done, but get it done very effectively. So you want to apply the same thing when you start looking at attack path management to say, you know, it's not a matter of just throwing money at a situation. Mm -hmm. More expensive products may be the right fit, but they may not be. And you need to know the difference between the two before you start applying them to close a gap that APM has discovered. So great example of this um, is that exchange server situation we were talking about before. Fixing that problem is going to require a tremendous amount of time and money and not just uh, work time for the IT department, but also downtime for the individual business units. So I can mitigate that attack path using other strategies short-term. Long-term, we're going to have to make this investment in time and money. That's a given. But short-term, I can use other methodologies to do it. And in a lot of cases, when people start really getting into attack path management, they want to, to correct every path that they find in the most complete way. It's a natural thing to want to do. Mm -hmm. But sometimes that's not the best fit, either for the technology infrastructure or for the business. 
at this specific point in time. So always look at, yes, the attack path is important to address, but I may not have to completely remove that path from the environment. I may be able to close it off or wall it off and buy some time until we're in a position where the business and the tech will come together for a permanent fix. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, Chuck had a question in chat. Don't be shy, chat. You guys, like usually my chat's a little chattier, but uh, don't be shy, y'all. It's good to see you, Jess. Good to see you, Carrie. Hey, well, Chuck's on fire today, so we're good. <laughs> yeah. So Chuck wants to know about alignment with industry standards. Like where does attack path management fit in to, you know, the alignment? Well, um, the two that you gave, NIST is all about um, compliance to specific rules and restrictions and, and things of that nature. It can help close a lot of discovered attack paths by following their methodologies. GDPR is on the other side of the fence. That's saying, if you can't prove that you did everything that you were supposed to do and you get breached, then there are fines that are associated with that. And GDPR is not the only one. We have CCPA in California. Uh, Canada is bringing some of these regulations to the table. Uh, many other countries and regions are doing the same. And in those cases, the practice or the process of attack path management allows is automatically going to have you documenting all the information that you need, that if you do, that's why CTEM is threat exposure management, not threat and exposure removal. <laughs> if you do get hit by something, you will already have all that documentation, all that uh, reporting work that says, look, we did everything we possibly could. So it helps with GDPR and other regulations if they get um, triggered by something that happens in your business. And NIST is going to be giving you a lot of methodologies if you're following their practices that will allow you to address attack paths that you discover. The same with MITRE, by the way, it's not specific to NIST. There's MITRE, there's uh, the C uh, Center for Internet Security, uh, CISA, the, if we talk about the US government has got policies. If you're following them, they're going to make things easier as you go through this process of APM. Who Who's APM for? Like, you know, is it for um, like more mature information security programs? Is it for large enterprises only? Is it, you know, like, you know, obviously I don't think it's industry specific, but is it, you know, is a small business with like 40 employees and one IT person you know, would they take advantage of a, uh, APM or, you, you know what I mean? Like kind of where does it fit in the ecosystem of different types of organizations? So this is something that any size organization can do, but they may not necessarily do it in-house entirely. Mm -hmm. So for example, the 40 person small business, um, they may be working with a managed security services provider and that MSSP may offer the discovery component of the attack path management, finding where these gaps exist and where they can be linked together. And they would work in conjunction with the IT person to upgrade systems or tighten and tune different things like firewalls or endpoint controls, right? Um, in a larger organization, this may be something that's done entirely in-house. They may also be working with consultants or service providers, uh, but for the smaller organizations, and we're not even talking 40 people, we talk about a 100 or 300 or 500 person organization, they probably still need to work with a service provider uh, to do this entirely effectively. So all orgs can take advantage of this, but it's going to look different depending on both the size and the industry 
that your organization sits in. What about implementation practices? Would you recommend like, okay, so like, let's say, you know, whether you're going to outsource it or you're going to do it internal. What, what do you think? Like, cause I feel like with vulnerability, again, I go to vulnerability management cause I feel like, I know you said it's not the evolution of it, but I do feel like there's a lot of, there's a lot of gaps with vulnerability management that C Tim is addressing. So yes. with vulnerability management, I typically would start with external facing assets and continue to scan those like with the regular, right? Using some type of automated tool that reports in, um, you know, weekly or whatever, when there's a change. Um, then move into critical applications, critical things, then move into, you know, the entire corporate infrastructure and these type of things. So from a, cause you can't do all the things all the time, right? We just, there's not enough people. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. What are your recommendations for beginning like crawl, walk, run of yeah. a attack path management, uh, tech, you know, technique capability? So, I mean, of course, I'm horribly biased because the tool that I, the company I work for produces a platform that does a lot of this stuff automatically, which makes life easier. Yeah. But you could start with something like uh, what we refer to here at Simulate as immediate threats intelligence and external attack surface mapping, ASM. And these are tools, ASM, external ASM basically says, we're just going to, on a regular basis, over the course of a, say, one or two week cycle, depending on the size of the org, we're going to look at what a threat actor could see if they were looking at your public facing stuff. What are they going to be able to see that they could take advantage of? Um, in the industry, it's known as reconnaissance, but most people would consider it attack surface management. And then immediate threats intelligence says, okay, this is an emergent threat, a new threat that's on the scene that's you know propagating through the internet, whatever it might be. Let's go ahead and expose these systems, not to running the attack code, which could be very dangerous, but rather saying, let's expose them to the indicators of compromise, the file hashes, the network communication. Do our security tools recognize this stuff? And you take those two together and you can begin to map out, okay, we have weaknesses here, here, and here in our external facing stuff. However, right behind those, I have network segmentation. I have endpoint detection and response, whether it's something I do internally, whether it's something I have an MSSP do for me, right? We have these tools. And so the path gets disrupted. The attacker could get to the web server, but the minute they try to jump to the database server, which is a common path, mm -hmm. uh, they get blocked because we have these tools that are blocking it, that are recognizing these threats. So it's not always about implementing all of the technology all at once. Yeah, You could start with a subset of this idea of attack path mapping. What can the outside world see? And how do the tools that I have in place react when they see known indicators of threat activity? And then as the organization's cybersecurity resilience evolves, you can begin adding in, let's go ahead and battle test our email system, our email security. Is it letting through identifiable malware as attachments? Is it letting through known malicious links? Let's put the endpoint detection and response through its paces. Mm -hmm. Try it with hundreds of different threat methods done safely, of course. You don't want to just you don't want to just grab Metasploit and go, you know, running with it. 
but there are tools like Simulate that can do this safely that would allow you to say, okay, the endpoint tool that we're using, it's really strong in all these areas, but it's really weak in this one. So now I'm going to focus on closing that gap. And then I'm going to see, based on closing that gap, how many other things did we block? How many other attack paths got closed? So it's an evolution. It's it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. You could use whatever analogy that you want. Mm -hmm. Crawl, walk, run is really good because you can start small and have a huge impact on overall resilience. Yeah, and one of the things you were just referencing that I, I, I personally thought was cool <laughs> about the platform was, okay, so you run it, which by the way, um, another cool thing about it, like you said, you, you, you were biased because you work for a platform, a solution, but like, I really don't see how you could really do this in a manual way with like, you could easily execute some scripts, but to do it in a meaningful way across an enterprise organization, it, you need, you need a tool. There's no, like, it, it's just too big of a, a challenge to do manually. Well, but, a tool or a lot of people. Well, and the issue, the secondary issue that we have in our industry right now is there aren't enough people. Yeah. Uh, so the tools can help even out that particular problem uh, by automating a lot of this stuff. But it could be done manually. It just requires a large number of people performing manual processes, um, which is difficult to accomplish for most organizations. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just I know that chat isn't going to like this, but it's a fact. So I'm sorry for the hashtag harsh truth. Like businesses are much more inclined to cut a check for a piece of technology than they are to fund an FTE. Uh, just because like a couple things. One, the, the technology check is a one-time thing or it's a subscription, but it's it's annualized and it's it's just like you stroke a check and like I've solved security, like here's a check, here's money. Whereas a human you know, there's talent, you know, development, talent retention, professional development, HR, like you've got a million other things, um, which I'm just telling you, that's the way the, the, the a lot of the business thinks it's much easier to get approval for technology than people, I guess, is, is the, um, is the takeaway there. But um, so like, again, I was starting to say why I, one of the things about the platform that I like is you talked about like you fire it off and let's say that you're weak in this area, right? Like whatever, privilege escalation happens all over the place or your EDR detection doesn't see, you know, exfilling um, Sam or something like that, whatever. So with the platform, there were opportunities to tune your detection uh, kind of automatic, automatically, right? Like I know you only had a subset of them, but it was it was more the popular ones. Um, oh, SOAR technologies. Yeah, uh, well, security course, orchestration and automation. Yeah, tools, yeah, like yeah. the ability to like basically tune your detections and then run it again to validate that you're actually because attack path management. It's not. It's like you said earlier. It's not. A, you said it was not attack path removal or continuous threat exposure removal. To me, it's not attack path visibility it's not attack path awareness it's attack path management you do something about it right just knowing the problem is there doesn't really do much for your security posture it probably just makes you sleep less easy at night so with the ability to do soar and do detection and do these type of things not even soar soar is even like better than what i'm talking about i'm talking about just like configuring the edr to actually oh, yeah. detect these problems but soar would be the next thing right detect the problem then do something meaningful afterwards um i guess do you want to just talk a little bit about that because i found it to be a really nice feature to helping attack path management 
So there are mitigation techniques for just about everything. If you're if your anti-malware missed something and you, you ran an assessment, the assessment said it's missing this type of activity. There are probably multiple ways that that type of action can be countered or blocked. And which one you'll use is going to be dependent on a lot of things. What technology do you have? What kind of system uh, is it running on, right? So having multiple paths is kind of critical because it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of situation. But having a tool that can tell you, here are the three most the three most common ways to remediate this. And then you could look and you could say, oh, that one won't work for our organization because we'd have to spend $100,000 on a new EDR. But this one will. I could do I can go into AD and I can change a group policy and it'll stop this. Okay, great. Let's do that. Um, some will be blocked by business operational. You know, we can't block that email address because the sales team relies on that platform that sends email. So we can't block it. We have to find another way to do it. Okay. There are alternate methods we could do, use to fix this. It really is the management part of attack path management. And it's the same thing. If your accounting division knew that someone was embezzling money. Okay. That's only the first part of fixing this. Because if I know that John is embezzling money, I'm not just going to let John keep embezzling money. I am going to take action. Now, that action could be one of many different things. I could fire John. I could sue John. I could report John to the police, right? Which one I'm going to do is dependent on circumstances that are going on right now. Maybe John's got a lot of dirt on the company and I don't want to, you know, haul him in front of the cops, but I'm certainly going to fire him because that's one way to fix this problem. Mm -hmm. It's again, same thing when we're talking about technology. It's not only identifying a problem exists, but beginning to figure out how we're going to correct. And that's when it becomes management as opposed to testing or discovery alone. Mike, as far as um, what matters to leadership, this is one of the questions I, I had lined up for you because I really I really think it's critically important. We're, like, you know, you're a very technical guy. There's a very technical audience, but but there really is an important business side to all of this. So so can you share with us, like like tell us the secret? <laughs> what matters to leadership about attack path management? Well, first off, you have to reframe the discussion in leadership's frame of reference because it is a technology issue. And for most business stakeholders, whether they're management level, executive level, board level, regents, if you're in an educational environment, whatever it is, these are people who are, generally speaking, quite good at what they do, but not good at the technology side of things. I always like to say, you have to explain it to somebody who can't figure out how to get Outlook to work properly. And that's yeah. that can be a challenge. And starting to align it with things that are in their frame of reference can really, really help with that. Um, for example, board members are going to be worried about financial exposure from regulatory blowback. Like the SEC is saying, you are going to have to tell all your shareholders, publicly say that you could have avoided this and you didn't. And that, that is a key thing that you can latch onto because every time they don't have to file that amended S10 is good for the company. It's very good for the company. It impacts the bottom line directly. Lose consumer confidence, we lose sales. Lose sales, we lose revenue. Lose revenue, we're out of business. So beginning to reframe these topics, not just as technology, but actually as business problems, because they are, can help. It, it is what that leadership is really looking for. They don't understand 
some will. I don't want to. I don't want to shortchange any leadership who is technical, but most are not really going to understand the ins and outs of how a firewall works. But understanding that we're preventing users from clicking on links that we know to lead to malware or to lead to a phishing attack, that's a business problem that you're helping to solve. Because if somebody clicks on one of those things, it's going to reduce overall revenue. We're going to be down for X amount of time. We're going to have to reset everybody's passwords. All these things create revenue loss. And now we're speaking the same language that they are. And now they are hearing what they need to hear. Yeah, no, it's it, it's a very good point. It's like, it's it's kind of like marketing, right? Like you you, instead of just bringing the solution that they don't understand, you outline a problem and and you've got the solution to help them like oh guys guys this isn't going to be good look at look at our competitors like it's good for us that they went down but this could happen to us oh mike what are we going to do i got you look you got like the proposal already the budget already you whip that up yeah putting it into their frame of reference is critical you need half a million dollars for a new next-gen firewall system throughout a mid-sized organization okay that's three salespeople right there that's three people that they could be using in a revenue generating capacity that they're not going to hire because they're giving you the money to put this in. So you need to be able to show them why this change is going to be as impactful to the business as those three salespeople are. And it's not impossible to do. If you reframe the discussion so that they understand that the data is their money, yeah. then <laughs> yeah. protecting that data, preserving existing revenue streams is equally important to the new revenue stream that they're going to give up in order to make this happen. Yeah, I love it. If Kimberly's in chat, like straight cash, homie, we have a sound effect. We play Mike um, of Randy Moss. And whenever it comes down to the the money, I want to give a shout out to Jess Bishop. Business people don't like security, but they do love business. Uh, kind of distilling the essence of what Mike is saying here. Very true, Jess. Yeah. Thanks for sharing uh, in chat. Chuck Sapp, the official uh, spokesman of chat today, has another question. Uh, are there any notable case studies, real world examples where attack path management prevented a major attack? They exist, but they're few and far between because for the most part, especially in the United States and North America in general, businesses didn't disclose when they were almost attacked. And if they can get away <laughs> with it, they don't even disclose when they are attacked. Yeah. Um, so there are some things, I mean, uh, of course, Simulate puts out an annual report every year showing how people change things and got better and deflected stuff. But I think we're going to see it a lot more over the next one to two years as these new SEC rules come into effect. Because you better believe if a company is going to be forced to tell the world that they couldn't deflect an attack, they're also going to be very eager to tell the world when they did deflect the attack. So we will begin seeing those things, but there aren't a lot now just because of the sort of secretive nature of, of, of dealing with threats in most businesses. Yeah, and that totally makes sense, Mike. Hey, you had mentioned the annual report. I, I've got Google up here really quickly. Um, what, what's the most recent annual report? I'd love to share that with, with um, you know, chat basically because there is good information in there uh just keep an eye out we're actually releasing we got some late numbers so we delayed oh. um, but we are going to be releasing it in the next couple of weeks and you can uh you'll definitely be able to find that we'll post it to linkedin we'll share it with simply cyber um so that everybody can see it what we have seen is that 
we're getting better, but there is still quite a way to go. All right. So uh, you heard it, guys. Watch. The simulator's going to be dropping one soon. Uh, Nick Barker? Toasty. <laughs> Toasty. I love it, Mike. Um, so, okay, let me ask you one question that has cropped up in my head, and we've been having a very nice conversation, so I didn't want to, um, you know, kind of jar the apple card here. But, like, and I'm probably going to play the sound effect because chat loves it when I do it. Um, how do how do we deal with shadow IT, right? Like, attack path management's easy if you know, like, what your footprint is or you have good asset inventory and stuff like that. We always have people, namely Carl, by the way, on the channel, um, Mike, we use Carl as like kind of the token avatar of like the bad end user, the end user oh, that okay. brings in yeah. tech. There's always a Carl. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So how, how can attack path management um, account for and handle shadow IT? So first things first, I, I do, we don't disagree a lot, but I disagree with you on one thing. If you know all of your IT, you could do attack path management. If you... If you aren't discovering the shadow IT, you don't know your infrastructure because it's absolutely there. It, I cannot tell you how many times we've done a lateral movement exercise and landed on a server and everyone on the call is like, what did you guys leave our network? We don't have any servers that, that are named that. And like, well, it, you do. So first things first, attack <laughs> path management requires looking at the entirety of the infrastructure. And that also means shadow IT. And there are tools out there that can do that kind of discovery. Um, external attack path management is a great one. Uh, attack surface manager, pardon me, is a great one. Because what it will do is say something on this website is talking to something on that website. Maybe irrelevant, maybe a third party. It's not something, we'll get into third party risk later. It's not something that we're directly in control of. But 40% of the time, it's usually a, wait a minute, didn't we take that offline a year ago? And it's still there. It's now part of shadow IT. It's unmanaged. We, in the industry, refer to them as unmanaged infrastructure because it's still part of your infrastructure. You just have no control over it anymore. So shadow IT is going to be an issue forever because there will always be a Carl yep. who has a free AWS account and spins something <laughs> up. I, I will tell you, I have never seen more technolo technological ingenuity than you get from a user who can't get to Netflix at lunch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, it's so true. I have seen people who cannot figure out how to re not reply all to an email. They just cannot figure this out, who somehow set up a VPN to be able to watch something in the office. And that's always going to be an issue. It's human nature. Yeah. So having the tool sets, and these are not necessarily expensive tool sets, by the way, to be able to discover that stuff because it is talking to other things in your environment. And it is something that could be visible, visible to tools that are keeping an eye out for this. Whether you do it in-house, whether you outsource it to a service provider, you need to have those tools running. You need to know where those unmanaged systems are. Yeah, I love it. Chat, chat's getting all, all uh, jack, jacked up right now about uh, shadow IT. Guy, I've never heard the term unmanaged infrastructure before. But I love it. I love it because well, shadow IT is something that's amorphic. That's hard to get your hands around. It's unmanaged infrastructure. It's our infrastructure. We have no visibility. We have no control. We can't do anything with it. It's not managed, but it's still part of our infrastructure. Yeah, exactly. I love it. I love it because it, it 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 lowers the bar to to understanding. So when you communicate unmanaged infrastructure, every, you know it, people know what managed and unmanaged is. People know what infrastructure is. Like when you say shadow IT. 
you know, sometimes that falls on deaf ears. Like, okay, it's well, scary. It's shadow IT. Oh my God. Yeah. No problem is we have the equivalent of a second Carl that you didn't know you were paying. Yeah. And I guarantee you any business leader will immediately rectify that situation. If Carl's make, if Carl number two is making money, they'll hire him and they'll, they'll manage him. If he's not, they're going to get rid of him. And it's the same thing when we talk about personal devices, when we talk about VPNs, mm. we talk about once you know it's there, you could start co either correcting it or integrating it into what you're managing. I love it. Mike loves some Carl. So many good Carl references there, Mike. So, Mike, um, Chuck's got a question. Uh, actually, let me take Chuck's question. I have a question kind of similar, but um, we'll take Chuck's because Chuck's been been crushing it today with questions. Actually, that was a really, really good uh, comment that Reggie just had. Unmanaged infrastructure is something that gets the wheels turning where shadow IT sounds like marketing buzz. It's unfortunately true. Um, it's that don't get me started on zero trust because that's like it's right up there with it. Look, permissions management. You have to have permissions. Management. So um, but uh, Chuck had a question. No, no, no. It's good. I, hold on. I mean, I, I love it, too. You, I mean, where, how, where did you stand on single pane of glass? Where... <laughs> single pane of glass. Um, we're not there yet, but we're getting closer. Yeah. Um, right now, if you if you work with a, an experienced and extensive service provider, they can bring all these disparate tools together into one dashboard for you. But behind that dashboard is all their employees doing all this work. So we're getting close to it. But yeah, unified management interface might be a better way to say it. And because we're not there yet, you can't unify everything just yet. I love it, Mike. I, I, I love all of the more appropriate. I fancy myself like a proper you know, person with proper English or whatever, but like you're, you're dropping like unified management console or like you, you just take buzzwords and you crush them up, throw them away and you come up with like much like unmanaged infrastructure. Brilliant. Like before I give you Chuck's question, do you have like, is there any other like common buzzwords in, in like, do you have a zero trust architect? Well, you said privilege management. Like, do you have any other like buzzwords you just slay and then actually have proper words for? I mean, there there are lots of them, but I mean, we'll trip over them, I'm sure. There are a lot of them because, especially, actually, this is a good point to bring up. A lot of those were created because business stakeholders don't understand the three-letter acronyms. They don't understand the technobabble. And so where we saw foreign devices on our network as a problem, shadow IT is something that they could say in the blanket term. We could just assign it to that. And... Now I don't have to think about it. I don't have to worry about it. It's out of my control. But you call them unmanaged infrastructure, unmanaged devices. Management is something they have to deal with. And yeah. now it becomes something that bridges that gap. And we're speaking that business person's language. I love it. Like so many knowledge bombs uh, Mike's dropping here, like on attack path management, but also kind of practitioner engagement with the business. Um, I, I'm thank you. I'm I'm excited to have learned some some uh, key things here too. Um, Chuck had asked, you know, is there anything that you're excited about around innovation that will enhance attack path management? And I'd love to augment this question a bit too. Like, where where do you see like it go, like attack path management going? I mean, it's a, it's relatively new, like compared to other kind of yeah. capabilities in the industry. So, wh wh where's the direction going? Thanks, Chuck. Um, so first off, we didn't pay Chuck for this question um, because Simulate actually helps with that. It is, a new, it is an emergent and evolving technology that does uh, automate a lot of this stuff. But I think where we are today 
is that a lot of the assessment, the testing that prior to the recent past has all been survey based, meaning people fill out questionnaires, which people are going to err on the side of I look good as opposed to this is what's actually happening again, human mm -hmm. nature. So automation of the actual testing is a big step in the right direction. And that is what Simulate does. Um, but this idea of virtual red teaming, I think, is going to be the next step where you start taking these disparate pieces of information and merging them together into what an attacker could actually do with this info. Uh, and that is is tricky. It's something that Simulate uh, has begun doing already, and we're going to continue to enhance those feature sets. Uh, but it's exciting because up until this point, you still required people who were very well-versed in cybersecurity operations and offensive testing to say A plus B equals C. Now, believe it or not, I am not talking about the integration of artificial intelligence or machine learning. Those are tools that can help, absolutely. However, as we all saw from what happened with Bing recently, yeah, sometimes they don't go the way you think they're going to go. Um, <laughs> but we're talking traditional statistical analysis done in an automated fashion that's saying A plus B is likely to result in C. And having the data sets that tools like Simulate have allows that next jump to say it is likely that these systems will come under attack because they have these vulnerabilities that line up really, really nicely. Uh, so that virtual red teaming is, I think, where we're headed next. It's not going to take the jobs away from the actual red teamers. Nobody who does that job should be worried in any way. This is a visualization methodology. First, it can help take a lot of the workload off of those folks. They are already doing, each red teamer probably does two to three full-time jobs. So if we can reduce that to one full-time job, we get less burnout. <laughs> we right. get happier employees. This is not a bad thing in any way. But we're not at a point, at least not in the near future, where we're going to be able to replace that human being in, in any way. But we are going to make their lives a lot easier and help do some of these translations that we've been talking about. This is a problem because your critical database that has all the info your teams need to sell stuff is directly open to attack. Mm -hmm. I don't have to explain why that's something that we need to address right now. The CRO is going to be jumping up and down, screaming at us, fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it. You know, it's the, the Futurama gag. Um, <laughs> they're going to be the ones when they see this information to say we need to put priority on this do you need budget do you need services do you need consultants what do you need to make this problem go away and that virtual red teaming this idea of bubbling up where these attack paths exist so that they can become focus not just to the technical teams but to the business teams that's the exciting new frontier Simulate is moving into that area, definitely. We've already begun, and we're going to continue doing so. Um, there are other ways to accomplish it. Of course, pride of purpose, I think we have the better way to do it, but that's because I work for Simulate. And of course, I'm going to say that. But um, that's where the industry is really starting to evolve into. You know, you had just mentioned something that I'd love your thoughts on. Was it the AI thing? Please tell me it wasn't. No, AI. no, no. Although we have a sounder for that too, Mike. Shall we play a game? Yeah, to... that's usually where these things end up if you if you don't do the training very, very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so, you know, this entire conversation that we've been talking about has been about 
implementing attack path management at your own organization. You, you know, even if you're a managed service provider doing CTIM or APM for business, they have said, yes, we want to contract you to do it. So it's still considered in, internal. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you have any thoughts or do you see any uh, movement in the industry? You had mentioned questionnaires, and I know third-party risk, people send questionnaires to each other and they fill them out, and there's no way to validate anything. And most of the time, people are going to, the business is going to do what the business does regardless of whatever. But insurance companies in the last three years have significantly made, have, have significantly issued surveys and made very, very big decisions based on the information that returned. And just to elicit a, or, or to share a real example, you know, I know of a company that went to bid for 24 different insurance companies to ask for a policy. And because of the control, because of the current control implementation of the current security posture, 20 of them declined to even offer a bid, a yeah. quote at all. And then four of them, um, but all 24 sent a questionnaire, right? And then four of them uh, did, and they were ridiculous premiums, okay? So do this tool right here, this technology, in my mind, if I was an insurance company, I said, yeah, I'll write you a policy, Mike. Just drop this in your environment, run it, and send me back the report, and I'll get you a, a premium. No need to fill out a questionnaire anymore. Um, are you, you know, but now you're starting to introduce a technology into your environment that's going to do this type of stuff. What are your thoughts around it as a utility for the insurance company? And I know it's really niche, but I'm very curious. It's niche, but, um, it's not something we, this isn't the first time we're hearing that. Let's put it that way. By the way, grab Jess's question. Cause it's actually a good one. I want to get to that in a moment, All right. but yeah. the, um, the insurance thing always comes up for two reasons. One is they're using surveys to increase premiums or deny coverage and, I mean, we suffered from this ourselves. A third-party survey that went to Simulate said, you're getting dinged because you do not have anti-malware on all of your server architecture. We host malware. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we can't put anti-malware. We put it on everything we possibly can, but there are certain systems. And we got significantly hit. It wasn't an insurer. It was another type of third-party risk, but we got dinged because of it. And yeah. what's happening is the surveys don't always align with reality. So having a tool that is purely objective, you don't have anti-malware on these servers. However, we can clearly see that you have 18 other security controls set up to make sure that's not a problem. Now we get the full picture and it helps on the other side of the equation too. Insurance companies have been denying claims either because of causes belli, cause of war, mm -hmm. or because of violations of the negligence clause. You could have prevented this, but you didn't, and you knew it was a problem. You still didn't prevent it. That is clearly negligent. There's a clause in the insurance that says, if you're negligent, we don't have to pay, so we're not going to pay. So on both sides of this equation, tools that can provide objective risk scoring based on industry standards, MITRE, NIST, CVSS, are going to be a big benefit to both the insurers and the insured. Now, it does mean putting technology into an environment. There are going to be many companies who refuse to do that, and many of them will have very good reasons for doing so. But I could tell you, and again, if we start talking business, I could save 10% per year on these premiums. For some companies, that's millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, letting them put a tool in our environment for a couple of weeks isn't such a big thing. And that may be what moves the needle. <laughs> 
Yeah, again. Great cash, homie. Again, dude, at the end of the day, it always comes back to money, doesn't it, Mike? Well, that's the thing. We want to maintain our security, but if I can save $30 million a year on my cyber insurance, which for larger enterprises is not an unheard of number, um, okay, guess what? You're going to put this box in your environment for two weeks, and then we're going to take it out. And no, you can't say that it'll violate our security because where else am I going to get the $30 million from? So we're seeing market pressures like that begin to move the needle on these discussions. And I'm not talking marketing. I'm talking actual, you know, dollars and cents market pressure. Yep, yep. The other side of the equation is the survey is only as good as the person who filled it out. It's not objective. And if there is a way for somebody to say yes to a question where they really should have said no, but yes makes them look better and they can logically justify it, they're going to say yes. Mm -hmm. Again, that is not necessarily a bad thing. It's how business gets done. It's not necessarily reducing the overall third-party risk, or sorry, increasing the overall third-party risk. But because we can't trust in those surveys, third-party risk takes on a whole new dimension. If there was something that is based on, again, industry framework, so it's not one company's opinion anymore, you have this ability to say objectively the risk of working with you is higher than of working with your competitor and watch how fast the the one who got turned down changes their security policies to get in compliance yeah absolutely um a hundred percent right uh and you know like you said if you if it's very rare that cybersecurity or information security can you know, not just be a cost center. So to, to save $30 million, that's something that you put on the first slide right. of the deck. <laughs> and the even deck. if it's only twenty or $30,000 in a very small organization, twenty or $30,000 is a lot of money. Yeah, definitely. And we're talking about that same 5 to 10% on an insurance premium. We're talking about getting 10 extra deals a year because we can prove our compliance versus missing 10 deals a year because we can't. These are things that move the needle when it comes to business discussions. And we're seeing a lot of very positive movement in that direction because, well, one, because the governments of the world have decided enough is enough. The SEC is cracking down. The EU is cracking down. CISA is issuing edicts to defense suppliers and government suppliers because they've realized these surveys are not telling them what they need to know. Now, on the other side of that, there's also mergers and acquisitions. Mm-hmm. From a business perspective, we spend six months in due diligence before we bring this other company in because we want to make sure that everything is going to line up from a business perspective. But most companies don't spend that much time or effort on making sure that the infrastructure isn't going to cause problems. And we know this because big companies merge and suddenly one or the other is offline for a month because the systems won't talk to each other. We've all seen it happen. Um, knowing the security posture of both sides during that due diligence process does two things. One, it can allow for forced corrections before the merger occurs. This is too big a risk. It's going to kill the deal, fix it. Two, we know where all the problems are so that when we do unify these two organizations into one, we can fix the problems as we're migrating stuff. And so both from insurance and for mergers and acquisitions, these objective uh, security evaluations have incredible benefits, not just to tech, but also to the business. Yeah, hundred percent. And I, I've lived through a merger. I was the security lead on a merger and it is a hot mess on fire. Uh, I can't go into details of what happened when we connected the two networks, but I assure you, um, 
it was an all hands on deck kind of situation. Oh yeah, I'll tell you uh, one. I I can't say who it was, of course, but mm-hmm. I was part of a company that got acquired by a larger organization many years ago, and I this was right around 2000, 2001, that time frame. So we had a Windows two thousand Active Directory controller, and it was also the file server because this was two thousand two thousand one. You did that kind of thing. We plugged it in in the new architecture, and it took over their NT four domain methodology it just basically said you all work for me now (laughs) so there's things like that that need to get ironed out before that can happen and objectively understanding where the strengths and the guy i can't stress that enough i know i'm i'm drawing on here but this is a really important point attack uh, path management is not only about knowing where the gaps are You have to know where the gaps are. That is important. But it is just as critically important to understand where the strengths are, where the compensating controls are. Otherwise, all you have is a list of things that need to be fixed, and you don't know which ones are important and are not important. goes back to Chuck's question from earlier. How do you prioritize? If I have controls that solve this problem, it takes less priority than the one that I don't have any controls to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well put, Mike. Um, Jess Bishop question, and then uh, apologies to everyone who's dropped a question. This will be our last question, and then we'll give Mike the floor here. So Jess, uh, good friend uh, good friend of the uh, the community of the channel wants to know about attack path management, being involved in after attack, right? The yep. aftermath. You've kind of, maybe you've cleaned up or you're still actively dealing with a, an intrusion. Uh, what are your thoughts around attack path management in those circumstances? So the answer is it has a role in that process, but it is not that process itself. The process you're describing is referred to as incident response and forensic investigation, uh, cyber forensics. And it's very much separate from what some of the attack path management. But during that process, one of the things that the people who are doing that work will need to know is how did this, how was this accomplishable? How did we not know about this before? And you never want to be the one to say, oh, yeah, we kind of knew about it and we didn't address it. And those questions are going to be asked during an incident response and during a forensics operation. So having all this information that you did, it was it was given lesser priority because of A, B, and C, the business agreed to this, that can save people's jobs. Uh, it's really what it comes down to. CISO should not be a revolving door. Mm-hmm. And having this documentation to say, nope, we knew about it. But this other thing that was much, much more serious took precedent, took priority, can be the difference between the board saying, we don't trust you anymore, and the board saying, crap, we had an exposure, this is not good, but at least we could prove that we were doing what we were supposed to be doing. Would you recommend, uh, you know, after reviewing her question again, would you recommend, you know, like you've had an intrusion, you've got it cleaned up, you're about to rebuild, like, you know, you're going to rebuild or something. Um, kind of using attack path management as a um, almost like a, 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 a QA, QC of your yeah. environment before going live? It absolutely is because what you just, unfortunately, what just happens is you discovered an attack path and <laughs> yeah. you're going to want to make sure that it is properly managed before you put those systems back online. Otherwise, you're li- you're, the potential is that you could get hit with the exact same attack again. So the the output of incident response and forensics is input for CTEM. It's input for attack path management. And the that's why I was saying it is a part of it, but it isn't the main part 
of dealing with the aftermath. It's basically what you do to make sure that the attacker can't circle around and hit you with the same thing again. Yeah, it, it, that would like I've heard of it happening. I've and, seen it happen. It's uh, not fun. <laughs> I can't imagine. No, no, no. Like you, you just, you just, you know, like just breathe, exhaled, sighed. Oh, finally, we're done with this nightmare. And then you get slapped with the nightmare again. Yeah, it's. I've seen threat actors who have sent notes saying, "Hey, guess what? I can still see you." Ooh, like taunting and, almost. Yeah. You know, it's it's sometimes it's out of altruism because they really feel sorry for you. Sometimes it's because they're just taunting you and they're going to hit you again tomorrow. And knowing how that attack path occurred can allow you to prioritize it and manage it. Yeah, absolutely. So time flies. It's hard to believe it's already been an hour and 15 minutes, Mike. But before we let you go, before I end the show, I do want to give you the floor, as I always do for my guests, for you to... Uh, final thoughts, whatever you'd like to talk about, Mike, the floor is yours, sir. So attack path management, as we've been talking about today, is a subset, a part of uh, continuous threat exposure management. It's part of a lot of larger processes, but it's a critical part. Knowing where there are weaknesses that are not compensated for by strengths within an environment does two things. First off, it allows you to start prioritizing start really beginning to manage that process as opposed to simply running the test. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, it begins to allow you to bridge that gap between the technology side and the business side. So that you could say the attack path that we have discovered that we're trying to manage allows an attacker to get directly to a critical business operation or process or service or data set and unless we address it, we can't stop it. And now we're talking their language because this is something that they rely on for them to generate revenue or whatever that business does. I mean, there are nonprofits as well, but it's critical to them and it's important to them. And now you can get the buy-in from the business side of the house as well. So when we talk about attack path management, we're talking about not just doing testing, not just uh, doing vulnerability management, these are important things. They're incredibly important and you absolutely should be doing them, but they're not the be all and end all. They're the first part of a process where you identify gaps, you identify strengths, you see how they interweave together to create attack paths, that's discovery. And then you begin to prioritize based on technology and business necessities so that you can begin to remediate and begin to address. Sometimes that's a new security product. Sometimes it's simply tuning the existing solutions that are in place. Sometimes it's interrogating a third party provider that you need them to tell you more information. But whatever it might be, this all adds up to knowing where you are likely to be to suffer an incursion and beginning to fix that problem. And that is how we move away from uh, being reactionary, being incident responders, which unfortunately is still going to happen, but the less of it we do, the better and begin becoming uh, resilience providers, for lack of a better term. You're correcting some of these things before they become an incident, before they become something that is going to be public and visible and detrimental to the organization. So that's really where APM comes in. Simulate, of course, provides tools that perform automated testing safely in production environments and the real environments where attackers are going to go after. And so it can be a huge part 
of attack path management by helping you discover the paths, by providing remediation guidance, um, by working with your vulnerability manager to say, yeah, this threat uses this vulnerability and these machines are not patched for it. So this is a problem. This is an attack path. Uh, and we'd love to talk to every one of you and, and show you how we can help with that. But whether you use Simulator, whether you use other tools or do it manually, this is where businesses really need to start going. It's, it's the next phase in cybersecurity, from being reactive to being proactive, from being technology, 100% technology focused to being hybrid technology and business focused. And it's we're seeing the effects of this in our world all around us in one company in an industry suffering a massive failure in cybersecurity, while others in the same industry using different tools and different methodologies and different processes don't suffer that same attack because they've gotten out in front of it and they've made it not possible to hit them with that attack. So hope to speak with all of you and I hope uh, we'll speak here again and in other places again. Uh, always here to help. Yeah, thank you so much, Mike. And echoing what uh, Jess Bishop said, you know, thank you for coming here. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Thank you for sharing. Like, a as Mike said, like, I know I've been, I've been calling it like vulnerability management evolving. Like, Mike's right. This is where it's going. It's more comprehensive. It's more thorough. Um, yeah, everything about it. So uh, yeah. really, I do want to show really quick um, on the channel here. Let me, how do I do this? Let me do this really quick, Mike. So I just want to pull up Simulate, a couple couple things to share. So this is Simulate's site. Like this is the product Mike's been talking about. This is where he works, but it is a platform that allows you to do it. I've used it personally in my own environment. Um, it is cool because it does do it in your actual real environment, not a simulation of your environment, not a, a document or something like that. So if you're interested, I think it's simulate.com. There's a link in the description below. Yep. <laughs> yeah, there's a link below that will like, it'll tell them that you came from Simply Cyber, but it, it doesn't really matter. Just it, go check out Simulate if you're interested. Um, I found it to be very, very cool, which is why. And, and if you don't go through the link on the site, please tell the person you speak to at Simulate that you came from Simply Cyber. We want to make sure that, you know, we're having this uh, net positive effect on these communities that we're working with. Yeah. Yeah. Not just tell them you came from Simply Cyber, but tell them to come to the Simply Cyber Daily Cyber Threat Briefing uh, weekday mornings and be a part of the community. <laughs> Uh, now, before you go, uh, this is Mike's LinkedIn page. Uh, Mike said beforehand that he's okay um, sharing this. So if you want to connect with Mike, Mike, we're very big on, I, I look at this. I'm pending a relationship with you, Mike. How this are right you here. pending? I don't know. But um, definitely um, connect with Mike, you know, just build your own network, have a good conversation. The guy's obviously incredibly smart. He's a practitioner. He knows what he's talking about. Um, definitely valuable to your organization. I just want to remind everybody before we sign off that, it, you know, do show up tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. Eastern time. Mike, I don't know if you know this. I do a live daily cyber threat briefing every single weekday morning. We cover the top news, the top cyber threats. I get spicy from time to time. Uh, I will be talking about CTEM and attack path management now that I'm more educated on it. Um, so definitely enjoy that. Guys, I want to thank all of you for being here today. Special thanks to Mike. Genuinely appreciate it. If you got value, hit the like button on the way out or tell a friend next time. We'll be here every Thursday uh, for the live stream interview. Next week's guest is Mike Warner, former CISO of the massive uh, manufacturing company Oshkosh. Not Oshkosh, but gosh, Oshkosh, the large enterprise. Um, he's going to be dropping confessions of a CISO, which is super sick. Uh, come check that out. 
Um, actually, I'm mistaken. He's coming April 6th. Whatever. Check the schedule, uh, <laughs> and we'll find out who the guest is. We've definitely got a guest next week. Uh, I'm Jerry. He's Mike DiNapoli. Thank you all so very much, and until next time, stay secure.